I believe also that the invasion of Israel by Hamas was planned as part of a chaotic creation of instability around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hub Culture Chronicles. We are still in Davos, Switzerland at the World Economic Forum annual meeting. And what is really an amazing collection of people who have gathered here to talk about many topics relevant to the global economy. Joining me right now is Mike Hewitt. He's the founder of a company called IP3. It's the International Peace, Prosperity, and Power uh, company. And they are a development company financing risk reduction uh, for infrastructure, particularly related to nuclear. Now, Mike uh, is more than an executive in a company that's deploying new technologies for energy. He also had 31 years in the U.S. Navy, and he worked on counterproliferation and cyber. And so welcome, Mike, to The Chronicles. Thank you, Stan. It's great to be here. Yeah. Um, we are going to dive into uh, a, a really serious conversation today, but also hopefully fun, uh, looking at what I'm thinking of as black swans. So... Um, you are working very much in the world of risk, and you're working also to look at how we can reduce risk. Uh, there has been a lot of talk recently about new risk, um, new challenges because of technology, because of the way the world is going. You're a geopolitical expert. You're a nuclear expert. You're a proliferation expert. There's so many things to dive into here. Can we just start with your definition of a black swan event? Sure. I think uh, in many ways, a black swan event is an event that uh, we get surprised by, an event that probably was well understood, but we weren't paying attention to it, an event that was created by other technologies that were being developed, or actually just things happening on the world stage that we were unaware of. Um, I, I would also say that my definition of of uh, insecurity or national security threats today b before a black swan event is lack of food, lack of water, lack of electricity, and a growing population worldwide. So I think those are the kinds of things that we're focused in on. And can we create black swan events that look at those issues in a positive way? And I think um, generally when we think about a white swan event as potentially a positive um, act like outcome or positive thing. So for instance, the internet was a white swan event in a way. Um, and a black swan event is sometimes the, something that would be considered dangerous. So perhaps the pandemic could have been considered a black swan event. It was very predictable, but it was still a surprise. Well, if you, that's a great example where from a white swan perspective, we were doing a bunch of things to work on the spread of disease and we had seen many, many uh, viruses come about that gave us clear indications of the things you need to do to protect yourself. So those were all white swan events. The, the Wuhan lab leak, and I firmly believe it was a leak from the lab, was not really a black swan event. We could have seen it coming. What happened afterwards, I believe, became black swan events. So let's, um, let's talk about the risks. What do you think are the greatest risks that we face right now? I think the greatest risk we face right now, as I mentioned before, is a population that's growing, uh, 1.5 billion people that have no electricity today. Uh, we have massive urbanization happening worldwide. 
you have a global shift in GDP from the existing Western European foundation with Asia to Africa, to the Middle East, to South Asia. So you're watching both population change, the youth bulge, particularly in the emerging markets. And we're kind of stuck in this 20th century Western European Westphalian thinking, and we're not paying attention to how the world is changing. So do you think that the world uh, is changing more rapidly now than ever before? Because I think it's only really recently that we've come to terms, really since the pandemic, that we've come to terms with this idea that we're not in the 90s anymore. Like I think uh, Americans especially have been in this idea that, you know, the Cold War ended and then America's in charge. Um, it's a very 90s mindset. And that's already really, what, 30 years ago? And so if you think in the 90s we were in a 60s mindset, that wouldn't have flown. Um, do you think that America is in a 90s mindset in terms of how it looks at the world? Does it, does it need to update its view of the world? I do. And, and I think if you, if you pay attention to the great example you just gave, the, the fall of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, and many people wanted to basically say the conflict is over as we've seen it. Well, we really mishandled how the post-Cold War environment was, was looked at because many of the Warsaw Pact countries became NATO countries. Um, many other things occurred where democracy um, became bifurcated between what the new world looks like and what democracies of the 20th century look like. And really what, that hap what happened with that was the expansion of Russia and China as not just authoritarian governments, but authoritarian governments that wanted to be portrayed as democratic governments. And so I believe in the 21st century, countries like Russia and China have a, clear, a clearer view of where the world is headed, while the Eastern and Western European nations, such as the US, the UK, Canada, Australia, Japan, Korea, we're still stuck in kind of the victory of the Cold War. And we are simply not paying attention to what the world is, what the world needs or which countries are pursuing global growth. So let's, um, let's divide this into kind of two areas. I, I think I'd really love to talk to you about geopolitical security or not security. And particularly, let's talk about the context of the current conflicts. And then I'd love to talk about cyber and the risk that um, is emerging around cyber and how that could impact um, our way of life. On the geopolitical front, we obviously know it's been a hard year between Russia and Ukraine, and certainly the the changes and the surprise of the uh, October 7th attacks and the ensuing conflict in Gaza and Israel. How do you see these playing out over the next 12 months? Well, I... Um I was very bullish on a peaceful solution a year ago for Ukraine. I don't share that view now. And, and I think these events are all connected to each other. I mean, if you want to back up 10 years and look at the uh, Iran nuclear deal, just as an example, where Iran was given the right to enrich uranium despite violating international law, and they've been building out this perceived program around a weapons program. At the same time, the Iranian proxies, Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthis, have been flushed with cash over the Iranians' ability to sell much more oil into the market. Um, then you have the abandonment of Afghanistan by the U.S., which the Taliban come in and take over that country within 48 hours. Um, so from a woman's perspective, from a, a quality perspective, we abandon the women of Afghanistan. 
they're now dealing with going back to the 19th century. So that really concerns me. And I think those events, including the Arab Spring, um, the Syrian Civil War, were all events that led up to Putin's decision to take Ukraine or attempt to take Ukraine, um, which thankfully the Ukrainians have risen up to defend their country. I believe also that the invasion of Israel by Hamas was planned as part of a chaotic creation of instability around the world. Mm -hmm. None of these things are in isolation. Mm. And if you want to trace back to maybe the core of some of this, I believe it's the lack of U.S. support on the world stage. We used to be the great deterrent model. Peace through strength, forward presence. We don't have that now. And so simply put, when you abandon the world stage as Americans, you open it up for others. So, yeah. so I think what you're seeing right now is an expansion of Russia and China. Power loves a vacuum. The vacuum will always be filled. Yeah. So over the next 12 months, if you don't see a peaceful solution, how much do you think the U.S. political elections of 2024, and you know, quite frankly, it's a huge election year also in Europe, even in Russia, um, Putin is up for re-election in the spring. How do you see the elections impacting the course of the war? Well, I... I'm very disappointed in the Republican Party right now for abandoning the support to Ukraine because they've politicized it as a Biden war. And of course, the, the southern border of America is what they're using uh, as a cudgel against further support to Ukraine. I think that's a huge mistake. We should be supporting Ukraine with everything they need. Um, this is a NATO problem. Ukraine is fighting NATO's war for them right now. I f fully believe that Russia and Putin in particular will expand beyond Ukraine into the Baltics um, and even further if he continues to kind of hold the high ground with Ukraine. So I believe first and foremost, the United States and its allies should fully support Ukraine in its complete victory and, re and return of their sovereignty. So, I mean, that's a pretty big statement that you think that they would move toward the Baltics after because the Baltics are in NATO. So that would be a direct confrontation with NATO. Do you think that NATO would um, sort of be a shrinking violet from protecting the Baltics if actually put to the test? That's the real question. So if you look at Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, these small Baltic nations, which are contiguous with Russia, and, and separate from the rest of the NATO nations, I think they're incredibly vulnerable to an expansion of this war by Putin. And frankly, they won't be able to put up a fight. It'll be over within two to three days. Mm -hmm. So your question is, is a really important one. Will NATO, under Article 5, execute its responsibilities to protect those nations? I do not know if that is truly the case. And the more the war drags out in Ukraine and the more we have to expend our military equipment for this stalemate of a kinetic conflict, the more vulnerable we become to Putin moving into the Baltics. Putin is in a war footing. His country's in a war footing. He's producing military hardware very rapidly. He considers himself at war to protect his nation. Ukraine considers itself at war to protect its nation. The rest of us are just pretending that it's, it's a small conflict, and it's not. Um, when we shift the focus to Gaza in Israel and the potential for 
you know, I, I heard the, U, the UAE foreign trade minister last night at dinner at the Ice House um, talk about the rupture of trust between the Middle East and the West. And that for me was very concerning because I think there has been restraint to some extent um, from various Middle East nations on what's happened from Israel's response to a horrific and um, terrible attack by Hamas that had to be dealt with. Do you see a pathway for us to be able to minimize what's happening there in a more soft conclusion? Or do you think that the other geopolitical problems that we face, uh, particularly from Putin, will continue to stoke those fires? And do you see a risk of them becoming conjoined? I think they're already conjoined. And the invasion of Israel by Hamas was pre-planned. Of course. It was resourced by the Iranians. Um, the proxy networks that have been under um, the control of Iran for years have been operating in a very coordinated fashion. Um, I'm very disappointed in, in how the anti-Semitism spiked the day of the invasion. And again, I believe that was pre-planned with China's support using information operations and social media. The volume of anti-Semitism that went up on the day of the invasion was exponential. And it you can't trace it to any. You mean it was pre-planned? I believe that it was that the using information, using social media, swaying the American population and others, that anti-Semitism is is a thing when it didn't seem to exist except in small pockets. Mm -hmm. To watch it go global overnight had to be pre-planned and had to be staged. Well, you know, one of our earlier conversations um, here on the Chronicles uh, was with David Schreier from Imperial College, and he was talking about flash growth. And what you say to me right now reminds me a little bit of that conversation. He was talking about how um, because we are so connected now, we can actually see organic growth um, at an incredible scale and speed. So, for instance, um, you know, it took nine months for TikTok to get to 100 million users. It took the World Wide Web seven years to get to 100 million users. But it also took ChatGPT 100 days to get to 100 million users. And it took Threads five days. So if you add on, in this case, let's say the, the Palestinian response, um, you know, it, it is possible to get to 100 million users in a day just organically um, because of the response, you know, of what's happening. And so it may or may not have been planned, but I think the reality is, is that it is possible now that you can sway global opinion to an extreme overnight, um, given the right circumstances. And that also feeds on itself because of the interconnectedness of social generally. Um, and, you know, I think that there, you know, we have to always, um, you know, disintermediate Hamas from the Palestinians. But we must also remember that the Palestinians elected Hamas and in some ways are responsible for the um, survival of Hamas as their governing system um, because the people have a responsibility to their government under, you know, every circumstance to some extent, even if they are oppressed. So no, no one is blameless. But at the same time, I think we can also agree that Israel um, has inflicted massive pain on the Palestinians, and there's reasons why people are upset about that across the world. And this speaker, you know, from the UAE was really saying that the trust has been destroyed between the Middle East and 
the West. And it remains to be seen how that is going to play out. Like he very much kept his cards on the table. How do you think as a geopolitical strategist, we can avoid making the situation worse? I think what the minister from UAE is saying is exactly right. And what, what were the goals? What are the goals of the Iranian mullahs? What are the goals of the Russians and the Chinese? I believe it's to create chaos. And the difference between Israel and Hamas is Hamas uses terrorism and the threat of, of, of human destruction as a tool. They want this story out there that hundreds of thousands of people are dying at the hands of the Israelis. They pre-planned that. Hamas could care less whether or not Israel wipes out the Palestinians or not. They actually want that story because it forces a destabilization against Israel and a rise up against Israel. And if you look at the timing of this, the Abraham Accords have of been course. approved. Um, Saudi and the Israelis were a handshake away. But, you know, the Saudis need, they need a solution to the Palestinian problem because they want to develop the Red Sea. And, you know, this is, it's in everybody's interest to solve the issue. But, you know, you also have to look at the geopolitical tensions between Iran and Saudi, right? Because the Iranians don't want to see Saudi cement peace with the um, Israelis. And so that then plays into Putin and then it goes exactly. up to China and Taiwan. So, you know, taking it over to Asia, what's your view about the risks on China and Taiwan? I think the risk uh, of an invasion by President Xi are not if, but when. Um, if you pay attention to what Xi and China have done in just the last 10 years with the Belt and Road Initiative and unrestricted warfare and really learning where the U.S. policy goes with respect to conflict, particularly in Ukraine or in the Middle East, they're measuring whether or not the timing of the invasion and the takeover of Taiwan is this year, next year, or three years from now. Uh, I would say that because of the invasion of Ukraine by Putin and how America has responded to that invasion, I think she is more emboldened to consider a takeover of Taiwan. Remember, he believes Taiwan is part of China. So his thinking of a takeover is reclaiming territory that belongs to him. But it's not really about that. I mean, at the end of the day, global power is projected by control of the oceans. And Taiwan prevents China from expansionist power across the Pacific. Um, it's a check on naval sea power for China. And that's the reason they want China. I mean, not to mention the semiconductor situation, but really it is about China's ability to project global sea power and Taiwan is a check on that. I mean, that's, I would, I would say it, I would say it slightly differently. The Chinese have already projected power. They've been building these artificial islands. They've pushed the U S and, and the allies out to what we call the second Island chain, Guam, Taiwan. And so what the Chinese have done is set the conditions to reduce our naval power in and around Taiwan. If you've watched what they've done over the last two years, almost daily sorties into Taiwan airspace, into their water space, testing and testing and testing the resolve of the Taiwanese and frankly overmatching them every single day. I believe in Xi's mind, this is not a military takeover. This is more of a quarantine. And I believe that the COVID experience gave him insights into how to lock down a country. And I do believe that much of what happened in China after the COVID leak 
was used as an experiment to see how do you lock down a country because of a pandemic. And I think in his mind, he's not thinking about a military blockade. He's thinking about a quarantine. So I'm just sharing you my insights into how I think she will approach taking Taiwan, isolating it. Unlike Afghanistan and, and Ukraine, we can't flow, flow more forces into Taiwan. And he has every opportunity to create a, a complete quarantine around that island. And he's been practicing that mission for the last two years. So I believe, and, and then the last thing I would say is look at the latest G7. Mm-hmm. She sits down with Biden in, in the press reports on this and says she basically tells Biden, I'm going to take Taiwan. It's well reported. Then you have a lot of reporting out there about Janet Yellen working with the Chinese on economic rapprochement and trying to work hand in hand with the Chinese, this kind of continued globalization view. So if you're President Xi and you're, and you're looking at these two data points, in my opinion, he feels as though the opportunity to take Taiwan is stronger because America will maintain its globalized view of China despite the potential for him to take back Taiwan. I mean, I think that the, you know, risk of a global connected brush fire, as you discussed it, um, goes up exponentially if we see China make a move on Taiwan. And it really puts us into an unknown territory in terms of like really a very big black swan event that is like so mad. It would be the largest thing we've seen really in our lifetime. Coincidentally, about 80 years after World War II, it's just a long enough time for everybody to forget the dangers of a global co- conflict like that. Um, there's another element to all of this, which is overarching, um, and it includes space and cyber, because uh, we're already seeing daily cyber events happen. And I think there was a very interesting um, situation that happened that is sort of like right in front of our face, um, was this Netflix show that appeared in December over Christmas called Leave the World Behind, and it detailed the effects of a cyber attack. Um, But what many people don't know is that it was produced by the Obamas. And so in the circles that look at these things, there was a lot of concern that this was actually a very important message that the Obamas were trying to send. So I'm curious, and I know you haven't seen the full movie, but I'm just curious like, if you could walk us through the potential of a cyber attack, what it would mean, what would be the consequences? Well, I think the more you unpack that movie, I think you're exactly right. There are more and more threads of, of both warning and caution, as, as well as maybe a reawakening of certain issues that uh, may have fallen off the table. Uh, we, we see cyber attacks every day. You see it in Ukraine, you see it in America, you see our businesses being attacked, and we're not talking about stealing intellectual property anymore. We're talking about attacks that can shut down critical infrastructure. And so one of the things that came from that movie is just how fragile our critical infrastructure is to a not very complex attack. I'll give you one example. If you remember the ransomware attack by the Russians on our east coast of the America pipeline, it was a ransomware attack. It was designed to get money, but it actually created fear because the gas stations didn't have gas for a day. And you watch the panic of that occur. That wasn't a very complex attack. Matter of fact, the Russians had no desire to create that outcome. They just wanted money. 
And so if you were to actually talk about a complex attack, a kinetic and non-kinetic or a cyber attack um, surrounding a, a natural event like the ice storm or something like that, you could actually see a cascading effect that would be very devastating on our critical infrastructure into major cities. I think what that movie gave us an insight into is what would it look like if there was an EMP type of an attack or even an EMP event that came from a solar flare and how fragile our critical infrastructure is and how dependent we are on the internet, how dependent we are in our daily lives on being connected, on having energy. Um, and I think that was the wake up call that I hope came from that movie. And so do you have any thoughts about what a good preparation and response would be to a potential cyber event like that? So it's interesting as we've developed our policy around cyber. And if you go back in time, it, the internet was created with no guardrails. And we became very happy that we could use the internet to our advantage and still believe we had privacy. And so the government realized that this was a real problem, um, particularly when you start to talk about an attack on infrastructure. So they tried to put guardrails into cyber. And we've seen some pushback on that. People still want to be able to use the internet and feel as though their privacy is completely protected. So I think we're trying to figure out that balance in the policy side. But at the same time, because of the, the, the dependence on the internet for everything we do. Um, we're watching things happen now that may set us up for real attacks. So you take, take the power grid as an example. The power grid today in America is still very analog, but it has these um, supervisory systems called SCADA systems that are very digital. As we've tried to digitize the, the energy grid system, power deployment, the commitment to more renewable energy, which introduces other complexities to our energy mix, these all create vulnerabilities from a cyber attack. And it would not be terribly difficult to shut down our power grid and create um, serious loss of life. And so the response to that, the question is, was it a nation state that did it? Or was it some kid in his basement that did it? So it's very confusing. As yeah, to because the, then you don't have a, a clear pathway for response. You don't know. And, and that's, the, that's the vagueness of cyber. Um, a ransomware attack is by an individual sometimes. Was it state-sponsored? Did it use state-sponsored tools? Is it the precursor to a larger um, kinetic attack or even an invasion? This is the complexity of cyber that we have to continue to try to figure our way through. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's a very sobering conversation across all of these things. Um, the We touched on it very briefly, but the upcoming political cycle, Europe, Putin in the spring, the U.S. in the fall, I guess to hope for the best potential outcome, um, what do you think would be the best potential outcome of elections to help to diffuse some of these uh, risks? I. I believe that the statements that are put out about President Trump as a Republican, and I'm assuming he's the nominee, uh, assuming Biden will, will run for re-election, uh, I think the statements that President Trump will hand Ukraine to Putin when he makes statements such as, I'm going to stop the fighting in one day, what he's really saying is he's not going to hand Ukraine to Putin. He's going to look Putin in the eye and say, you're going to stop the conflict and we're going to sort this thing out. 
but his number one goal is to stop the conflict. People like to interpolate that as he's going to hand Ukraine to Putin. I don't believe that at all. I look at Trump's track record as president, and, and a lot of the things we said he would do, he didn't do. And if, and if this is about the state of democracy, is that what's on the, on the um, up for election? I'm not worried about that, whether it's Republican or Democrat. I think they're shooting past each other right now. They want to say Trump's going to ruin democracy. Trump says Biden's ruining democracy through the border and through weakness on the world stage. Well, they're both right. We have to fix that. America has to return to being the global leader that it needs to be. And I don't think whether it's Biden or Trump or, who, or a third person, that's going to change. This is a very bipartisan conversation. Um, before we end, one of the major risks out there is financial because um, the BRICS are now talking about a combined BRICS currency. The BRICS Plus have just added Saudi, Iran, the UAE, um, and Indonesia. Oh, sorry, Indonesia was already in, but there, a couple other countries have all joined BRICS. The risk of a, a new CBDC that's BRICS-oriented um, countering the dollar is something that could destabilize the ability for the U.S. to project power globally. What do you think the odds are of seeing a new global BRICS currency emerge, and what would that mean for commodities and oil, which are certainly right now traded in U.S. dollars and backing the U.S. ability to provide debt ex expansion with a, a massive deficit. If that happened, it could literally cause hyperinflation in the United States. Is that a risk that you're worried about? Uh, I am I am more and more worried about the stability of the U.S. dollar in the world market. And I believe a lot of that was created by China um, in its expansion of unrestricted warfare. And in many cases, they've been trying to destabilize the dollar. These alliances, such as the BRICS and the BRICS Plus, they're inevitable. When countries don't feel as though the alliance that exists today supports them, they're going to create new alliances. And I fully expect that to continue to happen. The question is whether the existing Western alliances are relevant anymore. Is NATO still relevant? Um, is Five Eyes still relevant as an alliance that was created in the 20th century? Is BRICS Plus a threat to those alliances? I think we have to be very sober in our assessment of these things because they're not going to go away. These countries are aligning with each other because they see shared interest. And the question is whether there are shared interests as well. And, and I sure as heck hope that we're able to create an environment by which our alliances and their alliances can coexist. I think there's much more common ground on the world stage, but we tend to get bifurcated into these issues of oil or electricity. Resources. Or resources. And, and I think... Stan, that's it. It's about resources. Um, this planet is so rich with resources. We have to figure out. And again, I do I believe in climate change? Of course I do. Do I believe that focusing solely on decarbonization at the expense of adequate power for the planet is a good idea? I don't. I think there's a balance. I think there's a balance between coming up with an energy mix that works in the emerging market and an energy mix that always looks at decarbonization. And I think that technology, and if you want to talk about um, a swan event, I think that we're going to find, particularly with AI, the ability to deliver power to the planet in a, in a cost-confident way. And we need to be thinking about that. I mean, um, Davos, this Davos in particular, I think has taken on a sense of urgency. 
and every one of these promenades talks about AI or generative AI or the, what's the common denominator? You need a lot of power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's uh, let's dig a little bit, double click into that because one of the numbers that I heard is that as AI goes wide um, and we see the proliferation of AI, we could see as much as a thousand X increase in the demand for power which is a real big problem when the current grid, we're trying to decarbonize through renewables and the track just on current consumption um, is a 30 year window to be able to get to renewable. Um, The climate crisis meets AI is extreme. Uh, I know that you're an advocate of nuclear. I personally worry about the impacts of um, nuclear risk um, because of those very black swan events that we've been talking about the last 45 minutes. Um, but in a world of rapidly expanding need for power, barring fusion, which is my great hope, do you see any way for us to be able to meet the power needs other than nuclear? I think nuclear is a key component and it will become a key component. And it has been And COP28 identified a tripling of nuclear capacity in the next 30 years, simply because of what you just described. I think what we need to pay better attention to is that the population is going to grow, that urbanization requires much more power. And by most statistics, data centers, and you can call it hyperscale AI, you can call it Bitcoin, you can call it blockchain. It doesn't matter. The two key components are processing power and electricity. And by most um, predictions, 30% of the world's energy will be consumed by data centers in the next 30 years. That's an amazing number. Um, it's really interesting. I just heard yesterday that 65% of Bitcoin is now produced from renewable, which I was shocked that it's that high. Um, and very good news um, for, from the crypto industry. But what no one is anticipating is how much massively more computationally and therefore energetically uh, complex AI is. And so just as soon as we think we're on a pathway to figuring out renewable, AI hits and it's just going to explode the power demand. Um, so, wow. Okay. So we're going to wrap up here, but can you just give us, um, I don't want to end on a down note, but do you, are there any risks out there that you see that we're not thinking about or that we haven't covered? I, I, I think there are risks that are staring us in the face that we're not paying attention to. Um, as I've mentioned to you before, the, the planet's going to go from 7 to 10 billion people. Um, most of that growth is in emerging markets that don't have adequate power today. Um, how dare we ask those countries to think about climate when they're just trying to put electricity into their homes? If we do not pay attention to the need for power in the emerging market, Africa is just a great example, flush with resources, yet we're holding them back from industrialization. Um, I think if we don't pay attention to that, the climate change. If but if we cre- don't pay attention to climate change, we're not going to have, you know, we're not going to have food. I, I would say to you, we already don't have food and water. And a lot of that was because we have mitigated our growth in energy. And uh, the great example I give you is in America where they say Lake Mead is at its lowest level ever. Yeah. Because of climate change. Well, I mean, Hoover Dam was nearly shut down last year, which would have been a 30% reduction in power to L.A. So, so think about, is the answer climate change is the problem and I need more renewable energy? Or is it maybe I take nuclear power and desalinate water at 100 times more per megawatt than I can today and refill the lake? 
So I go after the common interest, which is lack of food, lack of water, mass migration because of instability. And then you top that with the protagonists that maybe want to see chaos on the world stage. That's the problem we have. And so I want to address the issues in a pragmatic way. I want power for the planet. I want water and food for the planet. And people don't migrate away from their home because they don't like it. They leave it because the resources aren't there for them to have a stable existence. I think we can create an electrification of the globe. And the fact that nuclear power has been accepted as a part of that mix, if, if you believe the planet's going to end in 10 years because of climate change, then you would be accepting nuclear power and the risk of nuclear power perceived or real. Uh, Mike, this conversation has been fascinating. I really worry now, but I think we've all been worried. And it's actually, you know, the first step to solving a problem is to understand the problem. So I thank you so much for giving us your time. Um, thank you for working with the leadership that we have, uh, not only here in Davos, but around the world, who are trying to address these issues. Finding cooperation and finding peace through cooperation is largely going to be achieved because of resource abundance. It's a lot easier to cooperate when you have resource abundance. So thank you so much for your perspectives. Thank you so much for your work on behalf of um, the planet. And for the Chronicles, I'm Hub Culture. I'm Stan at Hub Culture. If you want to hear more conversations, please check us out online, wherever you get your podcasts. Wishing you a great and safe rest of Davos. Thank Bye. you, Stan.